All right, you may be seated. Uh, If you will, just join me in a time of prayer as we get ready to open up God's Word and just contemplate what God has for us in this text. Uh, Father God, we ask, Lord, just as always, that your Spirit will move among us, that you will uh, use this time, Father, as weird and as awkward as it is, God, to continue to chip away our hearts, uh, our sins, Father, the hardness of our hearts, our idolatries, Father. There's not one person in this room who does not struggle with idolatry, including myself. There's not one person in this room who loves you as we should. And so, Father, I just pray that uh, you will help us to be humble, not to be self-righteous, Father, not to be arrogant or proud, Father, but that we will be dependent and ready to hear uh, what your word wants us to be, Father. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Uh, Well, I would not have picked a missional text uh, for this time period, uh, especially coming back for the first time after being gone for what has it been, like almost two months of no worship, maybe a month, it feels like a year, uh, too long. And so I don't think I would have picked Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 15 for this Sunday necessarily. But I'm not sovereign over such things, could have changed the calendar and had a totally different sermon lined up for today. But at the same time, I think it's more important now more than ever to understand our role as disciples and as Christians. If there is a text that we need to grasp and gain hold of and to understand, it's a text about being missional people. Um, I think it's always interesting. Whenever we talk about missions or evangelism, one of the things I see from people is it tends to be a sermon for someone else, right? missions and evangelism and and all that stuff, that's great, we'll support that, but that tends to be a message for someone else. The general population, they they don't like to hear missional sermons, and and typically when we talk about missions, people start to roll their eyes and are like, okay, here comes the the guilt trip, you know, we're going to see pictures of hungry kids in Africa, pull out your wallets, get ready to get ready to give. But most of us, who aren't called to be formal missionaries overseas, we tend to like the more practical sermons. Tell me how to get over my road rage, or tell me how to live with my difficult spouse. That would have been a great sermon for the first Sunday opening up um, after quarantine and being stuck with your husband and w- or wife for all this time, how to get over all of that. Um, we are offering free counseling services as soon as we open up. So, you know, with all these, with all of our problems with COVID, with with having to wear a mask at church, with you know the frustrations of having to figure out how to phase back into life. What's the point? It's simply not practical to talk about a global missions movement, is it? Or it's not practical to talk about being uh, a, a, involved in a local church planting endeavor. Or this is simply just not the right time for anyone to call out any kind of selfishness or anything like that and to tell me to be evangelistic. This is time to to take care of ourselves and to, and to look inward, right? And yet, I think as we find that for those of us that tend to approach missions in this way and evangelism in this way, when we check out, we tune out when it comes to missions, we will miss out on, what, on how the Bible describes true, real discipleship. It's my hope that in looking closely at Jesus' instructions in Matthew 10, 5 through 15, that we'll stop thinking about mission as this formal thing that's somebody else's job, 
that will stop thinking of evangelism as something that belongs to some other elite people that are called to that. Instead, it's something that Christ has entrusted to all of us who claim to be disciples, who call ourselves disciples. We are all called to mission and to evangelism. We all have a part to play. We have a task in front of us, a mission field around us. We live in a world that desperately needs the gospel. And I think the main idea of Matthew 10, if there's anything that we need to be reminded of right now, is that Jesus is the master over the church's mission. If, if Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, then He governs how you're to live, especially now in this time of COVID. We as servants, as sons, and as daughters who are under the Great Father, we don't have the option in and of ourselves to sovereignly dictate how we're going to live our lives. We're to submit ourselves underneath what He's called us to, to be. If we're going to call ourselves disciples then we have to be disciples. I've got to tell you, I've been working on pastoral tact for the last year or so, and lots of texts naturally lend themselves to real sweet, genuine hope. I'm, I'm just telling you on the forefront so nobody gets their feelings hurt. This sermon's intentionally pointed. Intentionally pointed. I'm not being unnecessarily pointed at any of us. I've had to spend a week long looking at this text and evaluating my own life. I've been on phone calls with people during this whole season. I've seen, I've seen the polar extremes of right and left and, and you know, uh, uh, red dead Republicans and dead blue Democrats and people who think that this is all a hoax and, and then people who think that, that uh, this is going to kill us all. And so I've just, I, just as a pastor, just being completely transparent and honest, I want to graciously, patiently, and, and include myself in this, tell you that this is something we as a church desperately need to work on, to be disciples, to be people who are others-minded, not self-minded, to be people who don't just complain when we're not served well, but to be people who want to serve others and bring out the gospel to those in the community. We desperately need that. And I'm at the forefront of that need because I am a very selfish person. My wife can tell you over the last four weeks of quarantine. So we, we all need this. And so it's intentionally pointed. And so I just want to start off by saying, you know, Scripture's convictional. It's meant to be convicting. It's meant to have a, a, a point to it. It's a two-edged sword that pierces from time to time. And so if we're expecting it to be a rubber mallet that treats us gently all the time, it's not always going to do that. We have a gracious and gentle God who's patient with us, and yet we have a God that will break us when we need to be broken and where we need to be broken. And that is this text, I think. So instead of asking, how is this going to apply to everyone else and all these other people that are called to missions, I think we've got to ask the question, how am I, as a disciple, going to apply these principles. I've just got to be pointed uh, in this. When, when, when Scripture talks about discipleship, we don't have any, just, any disciples just claiming. It's not just a verbal affirmation of Jesus. It's an active participation in following Jesus. That's what being a follower of Jesus means. We in the American church have created a category of people that can sit on the sidelines, a category of people that can critique, a category of people that can just be served and yet, there's no such category in Scripture of a disciple like that. 
followers of Jesus leave their nets, they leave their boats, they suffer, they struggle, and they engage in the world that they've been called to. So, I'm, I'm in here with you on that. Now, on the one hand, this scripture recounts instructions that were given explicitly to Jesus' 12 disciples. There's some things in it, quite frankly, that we can't apply. For example, Jesus says, don't go anywhere where there are Gentiles. Just go to the Jews. Well, that's, that's explicitly for the 12 disciples. Otherwise, we need to cut all of our missionaries and go straight to Israel every single year there we go. No more Malawian, Malawian trips. No more Dominican Republican trips. Let's just stop local outreach. We need to go back and reach the Jews in Israel. I think, though, if we're, if we're looking at it in context, is the pre-Great Commission commission, this sending out in Matthew 10 is a little different than the sending out that we receive in Matthew 28. And so we've got to think with a judicial mind, asking what principle is it that Jesus wants us to apply now? Because this text, though it was intended explicitly for the twelve, does have principles that then work its way out into our mission and our life as Christ's disciples. Christ, I think, has a mandate on your life, whether you're an IT director, a teacher, a stay-at-home mother, an entrepreneur, a, uh, a car mechanic. He has a mandate on your life as being a disciple. This is what you are signing up for when you choose to follow Christ. Again, the big picture here is that Jesus is the master of our mission. Verse 5 begins in this way. The 12 sent out instructing... The, the 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. Jesus' sovereignty over the church's mission is highlighted in the fact that it is He who sends people out. He just told everyone, look at the harvest, pray to the Father, and pray for Him to send out the harvest. And then suddenly we see Jesus sending out people into the harvest, which in some ways makes Him equal with the Lord of the harvest who can send out workers into the harvest. And so His authority is seen in that He is the one that is sending people out. When it was in the ancient days, the emissaries, the messengers of the king, were only as authoritative as the king had given them that commission. Their their commission had the authority only so much as the commissioner that had given them that authority. The father sent Jesus, and then in John 17, 8, we find out that the son sends us just as the father sent him. Now, imagine, I, just, I, I read John 17 18, 18 sometimes, and I just think, you know, I've got neighbors all around me, and Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And I just wonder sometimes if Jesus, like, what would have happened if Jesus go, well, Father, I, I'm not going to cross that street. <laughs> I'm not going to go to those people's homes. I'm not going to carry that cross. I'm not going to bring that message. I'm not going to expose myself to that kind of rejection. I mean, the, the, the parallel here is that disciples parallel the, the true master, the true Savior. And so when we go, we are mirroring what Jesus has done for us. We're mirroring what Jesus... That's why we call it incarnational ministry. We step into other people's lives, other people's darkness to bring them light we cross the threshold to bring them what they, need to, what they need to hear, what they need to see. And so as Christ, our great King, has sent us out, we have, we have a life, we are given a life that is under His authority as the royal Son to whom all dominion is given. 
Now, I also think when you see that phrase, he instructed them, that's interesting. Why would Matthew go into so much detail about instructing them? There's a, there's a very unhelpful movement in American missions where we've broadly defined missions as whatever people want to call it. And I just got to ask the question is, did Jesus have a particular idea in mind when he gave the commission? Did Jesus have an explicit idea of what his people would do, how they would live, when he gave this commission to go out to all nations? And the answer is yes. We don't have the liberty or the license to just do whatever we feel feel called to do and call it missions, right? I mean, I think we would all agree that if a guy walked in here today and said that he was called to share Jesus with the penguins of South Antarctica... I think we would all think like, okay, well, that doesn't fit into the context of what Jesus has called mission. Any more than me collecting garden gnomes would fit into the idea of what mission is, right? And so we have to, we have to ask, he's our master. He had the authority to send us out. He's our master, and he has instructed us how to live. My friends, American disciples, I cannot plead more passionately about this. Wake up to the fact that you do not just have another democratic king, another democratic president that you follow in Jesus. You have an authoritative king. If we want to be Christians, we have got to submit ourselves under his authority to iron out our lives to fit his mold and what he has said, that is what we have signed up for as Christians. This isn't a democracy. He's not come to bring that. He's come to bring a kingdom. And so we're going to be disciples. We have to think like he wants us to think. We have to go about and do this mission in the way that he's called us to do it and proclaim his message. So I think principle number one, disciples go where Jesus sends them. Jesus' authority over the mission is demonstrated in the, in the fact that he tells them where to go. He tells them not to go to the Gentiles, but to stay with the Jews. Now, Jesus has already shown that he has no problem ministering to Gentiles. He's helped the Roman centurion and even explicitly called out his faith as an example. No faith have I seen in Israel like this. And then he says, he points to the Roman centurion as an example, as a template that many from east and west will come to Abraham's table and will feast in the kingdom. And so Jesus has no problem with reaching out to the Gentiles. He's not ethnocentric in that sense. It's simply that at this stage in history, the Jews must receive the gospel first. They had the promises of God first, as we saw in the Old Testament. We see Paul modeling the same thing. When he goes into a town, he goes into the synagogue first, preaches the gospel to the Jews who receive the promises of God, and then he goes out to the streets and preaches to the Gentiles. In Romans 16, he talks about the gospel, which is the power of God, to the Jew first. Now, that doesn't mean to the Jew paramount or to the Jew only or to the Jew most importantly. It's to the Jew chronologically, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now, if I were to ask you, should the disciples go, what if, what if we read just the next verse and they went to Africa? They went to Spain. Would they have obeyed Jesus' instructions? Do, should the disciples at this point go where Jesus just told them to go? 
And I think we would all agree, yes, the answer to that is yes, we, he, they should go where he called them to go. Well, fast forward to Matthew 28. He's now expanded it to all nations. He's expanded it to everyone around us and beyond. Are we living in such a way that is denying his authority of where we should bring the gospel? Are we living in such a way that we talk about Malawi, but we won't talk about our neighborhoods? Are we living in such a way that we'll talk about our neighbors to the right of us, we'll talk to them about the gospel, but those neighbors to the left of us, they're different from us. My friends, if Jesus is authoritative in Matthew 10, he's authoritative in Matthew 28, he's authoritative now. Disciples, very simply, go where Christ sends them to go. I'm not saying that everybody's going to be a foreign missionary, not saying everybody's going to go on a foreign mission trip, but everybody's going to go somewhere to someone. That's what he's called us to. Principle number two. Disciples say what Jesus commands them to say. If Jesus is master over the mission field, he's master over our message. We must go where he sends us. We must preach what he commands us. We do not have liberty to change our mission field, and neither do we have creative license to change the message. Man, I feel the brunt of that every time I get up here to preach. I have some ability to be creative in the way that I preach, and of course I need to try to make it engaging. Some people don't think it's engaging enough. Some people think it's too creative and too engaging. But, but as, as a preacher, I'm under this burden of making sure that I don't change the message that I know many people won't like, that I don't change a message that I know many people will reject, that I know that for many people is far too narrow to, to even be worth preaching. And yet, we don't have that kind of creative license to change it. Jesus said, and when you go, as you go, proclaim, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached in Matthew 3. It's the same message that Jesus began to preach. And at its root, it's a very Christocentric message. When the disciples went out and they said, the kingdom of God is at hand, what were they saying? Well, they were saying first and foremost, according to the Sermon on the Mount, that the kingdom of God is wherever God's will is done in, in, on earth as it is in heaven. So it's a, it's a place where the world has been restored back to God's intentions, to its creator's intentions, to obey him. Second, it has come, you don't hear the message, the kingdom of God is at hand, until the gospels, until Jesus comes into the world. The king brings the kingdom. And then what comes with the, that message, the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, if you go back and you look at it, Matthew 3 and 4, it always comes with a call of repentance. Always comes with a call to reject sin, to leave sin, and to come back to God. Well, that's the message that they're to proclaim. And they ideally would go about not just saying the kingdom of God's at hand, but they would tell them, number one, what that has meant in the restoration that has come through Jesus. And therefore, since restoration has come through Jesus, people should repent and leave the sin that brought us into the ruin into the first place, in the first place. And so it's the same gospel-centered message. 
My friends, when we go out and we speak about our King, Jesus, who is singularly authoritative, singularly authoritative over all things, when we go out and proclaim His sovereignty over all the nations, when we go out and we declare His kingdom, and we call people to repentance, we're declaring that same message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now for us, for them, the the greatest proof of that at that time was that they were able to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, just gave them that authority to validate it. Because in ancient Israel, if you came out prophetically preaching a message like that, you better be able to prove it. And so he gave them the ability to do these things so that they could prove that the message of uh, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. For us, the greatest proof that the kingdom of God is at hand is the empty tomb. If anyone needs to see definitive proof that the kingdom of God has broken into the domain of darkness, if anyone needs to see definitive proof that the world is being restored back into the Creator's intentions, that the King has come and that He reigns on the throne and that we must repent as a response to that kingdom's coming, we need to only point to the cross, the crucified King, and the tomb the resurrected king. That's our proof that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as those who are sent out by our king, we're not here to modify our message. We're not here to modify our message. I'm just convicted about this, you know, again, as, as, a, uh, as a pastor. You know, I can be innovative. I can be creative in different ways and make different homiletical points. But man, how is it that we can be so clear about so many other things and be absolutely tripped up about the gospel? I mean, we can stay, say with absolute pointedness who our favorite NFL football team is. Somebody says, how'd you come to Christ? Well, uh, uh, it's always, it kind of always happened, you know, and we start to stumble through it. We somebody asks us what we believe about the gospel, and suddenly we're 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 like a deer in the headlights, and we're not able to articulate it well. But we're called to be people who are clear about our message. We're called to be people who are going to proclaim the kingdom of Christ. Now, principle number three: disciples trust the Lord. Now, one of the best things about COVID is that a lot of the televangelists have kind of gone away. For a little bit of time. They, they started off and they, at the beginning of all this season, they were blowing into the cameras and stuff, and that was great and fun to watch. Um, uh, we, we, we laughed a lot of, at it. Um, Abigail, Abigail had, it was like, why are they blowing on the camera, Daddy? I'm like, because they're being weird, honey. Um, but uh, uh, the, the best thing about COVID is you, you notice that there's no televangelist telling you to send them money, and they will, maybe there are out there, I just haven't seen them. They know they can't heal COVID. They know they can't, they can't bring the prosperity to COVID. And so, anyway, I just was thinking about how uh, ironic it is that a lot of the prosperity preachers are amazingly silent right now when things aren't so prosperous, which to me is proof that they've preached a false message. In a world of televa- wealthy televangelists, million-dollar preachers, I feel like this next bit of instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples is really helpful. You received without paying Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. 
no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Now, disciples of Jesus did not pay for the gospel when they were given it. They did not give money for the good news of Jesus, and neither were they to get rich by giving out the good news. You don't see any disciples doing what we had one local uh, prosperity preacher doing, uh, calling people to give them money and to sing this, this song saying something like, I just planted a seed, so something good is going to happen to me. You don't see any of that happening when Jesus sends these people out. Now, to be clear, he's not telling them that they can't make money. He's not telling them that they can't get paid. In fact, if you go to First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, Paul uses this very same quotation from Jesus as a defense for why teaching and preaching elders should be paid. It's First Timothy 5, 22, if you want to look it up on your own. So it's not, he's not saying that. What he is saying is that ministry is not the way to line your pockets. Ministry is not the way to get rich. Ministry is not the way, the way to buy your private jet. The gospel is not there for us as pastors, as missionaries, as ministers, to become peddlers of God's word, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. Now, God works through means, which means he works through you. And he works through your money and your giving in order to make his ends happen. But ministers shouldn't be manipulating those means in order to get more, in order to get across, uh, to, to get, come out of this more uh, better. Um, they're not to stock, stockpile supplies. They're not to hold out greedy hands. They're to trust God in all things. Now, you might think, okay, well, that was definitely a point for you. Great. Now I'm going to turn to how this applies to you. In case anyone thinks as only preachers who are tempted to use their ministry and faith for sinful gain, we must be aware of the ways that non-vocational Christians do the same. Now, about it was more prevalent 20 years ago when it was advantageous to be a ch- local church-going person, but people would come into it. it how, how advantageous was it to be a lawyer and to come to a local church, a local car mechanic and come to a local church? That's where you drum up clientele. This is where you pass out the little cards, a little ichthus on the corner of it, so that everybody knows, come to me, I'm a Christian. You'll pay double, but you'll have a Christian car mechanic, right? So, so we've seen that in the past. How many of us have been silent about our faith at work until we found out that the new boss was a Christian? Suddenly, it's advantageous to be a Christian. How many of us have been silent about our faith until the president claims to be a believer or until the person that we want to make the cell with or make friends with they say they're believers and then we'll come out about our faith my friends all of that still using our faith in ways that are just advantageous for our worldly gain when we when we throw out the christian card in order to to create a new network of people that we like to hang out with or a clientele that will do us some kind of business, give us some kind of business or a way to get elected. My friends, that is going against what Jesus has just called people to do here. That is not what your faith is there for. Your, your faith is not a platform for your career. Your faith is not a platform for your reputation. Your reputation is a platform for your faith to be proclaimed from there. Your career is a tool meant to be used to spread your faith, not the other way around. 
Everything you have is meant to serve the mission and nothing else. So, not just televangelists, right? It's all of us that tend to do that. I think we can all think of some times when we were rather shaky. I I've definitely have my, my moments in my life where I was a little more quiet. Didn't really want, you know, I was in, in the group of people that uh, I didn't really, I didn't want to be that guy, you know, that hokey Christian in the midst of all these people um, until I met this beautiful girl at UCO and I found out she's a Christian and man, did I want her to know I was too right? We happen to be married now. Um, so advantageous, you know, yes. Uh, but how many times have we done that? Where we just kind of modify our faith based on how it's going to benefit us. We got to be careful about that. Principle number four, disciples extend peace, but are not hindered by opposition, are not hindered by opposition. Disciples of Jesus are committed to their calling and are amazingly resilient people in the face of opposition. Can we just be honest and vulnerable? I mean, there's not many of us, and so half the church isn't going to know that you're agreeing to this, so that's good. Um, But can we just confess for a moment how fragile we tend to be? I feel like American Christians are, and I'm, I'm raising my hand here, We're some of the most fragile, emotionally breakable, emotionally unstable people in history. Masks come out. My friends, Chinese people have been wearing masks for decades. There have been people who've been told not to come to church buildings for thousands of years. There are people who have not gone through, who have gone through triple or quadruple what we've had in the last month. There are people who, if they share their faith, they get slaughtered for it. They're in a a group of people that would kill them, beat them, hurt them. We tend to be people who are worried about, just, and this is me, you want to know what my biggest fear of my neighbors are? My biggest fear isn't what they might say about me, it's what they might think about me and me not even know what they're thinking about me. It's that potential thought that they might think that they thought about me, if I thought about it deeply enough, then I might be concerned about their thoughts even more. Right? It's, it, that, that tends to be enough to hold us off from our mission. We are lions, we are tigers and bears, we are, we are missional carnivores, that are, we are the most dangerous group of people to this world because we have a message that can turn the world upside down and yet we act like kittens. Jesus says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, stay there until you depart. And you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, the word command, uh, the, the, the word that means uh, greet here can also mean an extension of peace. How did you greet people back then? Well, shalom, right? You extend peace out to people. So the picture that we have of a, of a, of a sent-out disciple in this way 
is someone who is quick to give peace. The first thing they want is to give peace. They're doing everything they can to extend peace to people. And it's only after they're rejected that they decide to shake their, the dust off their feet and move on. If people do not listen to their message, which there will be people who will not listen, there will be people who call for our persecution, for our marginalization, and what do we do then? Some of us have tried this whole evangelism thing, haven't we? How many of you have ever shared the gospel and got shut down? Okay, most of us would have had that experience. How many of you would would readily agree and admit, just like me, that tends to make us a little gun-shy, right? Because what if that happens again? Think about Paul, though. Now, we're not Paul, right? Paul, though, was a human being. So in that sense, we do share some of Paul. Paul had the indwelling Holy Spirit, and so do we. And Paul did desire for people to imitate him as he imitates Christ. He does say that, right? So that whole point of, I'm not Paul, well, he told you to be Paul, in a sense. You know, he told you to imitate him. And so let's just think about Paul, Acts 13, 14. Paul and Barnabas, they're in Iconium. They almost get, or in uh, Poseidon, and they almost get killed. They get rejected. They're spreading the gospel message. They almost get killed. They shake the dust off their feet. It's there in the text. So they're doing what Jesus says. They shake the dust off their feet, which basically is a sign of we're not sharing in your rejection. We tried. We're moving on. They move on to Iconium, and the people beside us follow them. Now, can you imagine this? You get, you get it rough on one town. You decide to leave because everybody hates your guts. You move to another town, and the whole neighborhood moves with you. So they come to Iconium, and they say, yeah, these guys cause trouble in Poseidon. Don't take them here in Iconium. So he moves on from there, because they were almost killed in Iconium, to Lystra, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. I don't know if you, you know what stoning looks like. There are some big rocks in Israel. Massive rocks in Israel. So I can only imagine how big the rocks are in Asia Minor, Right? And so you're talking like baseball-sized rocks. These are rocks meant to kill. These are weapons. These aren't little baseball or golf ball-sized pebbles. These are rocks. You get stoned and he's left for dead, which means they thought he was dead. The disciples from the city come out to bury him, I think. I think that's what they were coming out to do, was to come out to bury him. He gets up, dusts himself off, walks right back to Lystra and Iconium, and then moves on to Derby where he continues to preach the gospel. I, I would love to give us a way out of this and say, yeah, that's Paul, though. That's Paul. But isn't this what all Christians are called to do? I mean, when I think of, when I think of how we're supposed to be living, I think of also of John G. Patton. John G. Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides, who one day all the people loved him, and the next day they wanted to cannibalize him. I think of Charles Simeon, 18th century pastor, who was put into a church where everybody hated him. I've not had it rough compared to him, but everybody hated him. And he stuck it out. They, they hated him so bad, they locked him out of the church. Can you imagine the pastor not having keys to the church, can't come in, he can't get into the pulpit. So he has to preach outside in the hot sun because they won't let him in the church. 
What would you do if you were Charles Simeon? I tell you what I would do. And there's been, just again, there's only half of you here, so I can readily confess this because I can deny it to the other half. Um, Littlest, littlest text message that hurts my feelings. The, The most painful email. The whiff of a rumor that's directed at me or my family. I'm like, I'm out. I'm done. I give up. Charles Simeon stayed for 53 years at the same church. His philosophy was, they hate me and I'm going to stay till they love me. He was shot at out on the street. I just, again, this is, I've been preaching for weeks straight. And so you can always tell when I need a little bit of a break because I get like, weird um, uh, and kind of quite ruggedly honest, I just, I don't think I would have stuck it out that long. I don't think I would have stuck it out that way. Definitely without the help of the Holy Spirit, I couldn't do that. I mean, there's just little things that make me want to quit. He's had people shooting at him. Now, the, the thing in that is not for me to shame, say, well, that's Charles Simeon. No, the thing in it is for me to be honest And to confess, God help my emotional fragility here. I am not the resilient, immovable disciple that you have called me to be. We are rocks of the kingdom. We are temple stones that cannot be broken. We are on the cornerstone where Scripture talks about anyone that stumbles on the cornerstone is shattered. That's us too, because we rest on the cornerstone. We are more than conquerors, and yet we act like we're conquered. It's just, it's just always amazing to me to, to, to find that kind of problem in my own life. And yet there's a lot at stake. Look at, listen to what Jesus says. It's more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah, you know the story, very bad wicked city. Sulfur comes down from heaven, destroys the whole place. Smoke goes up like a furnace. Now, I, that's people dying and people suffering because of their rejection of God, because of their sin. And yet Jesus says it's better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for people who reject the gospel. Does that move you to pity? I mean, we're all feeling sorry for ourselves in different ways, but my friends, we don't get this. There's now no condemnation for us, but for your neighbor, it would have been better if he lived on, in Sodom and Gomorrah on the day when the fire fell than for him to die without Jesus. Can we be moved to pity and sadness about that? Just how much is at stake? Can we just for a moment quit thinking about ourselves and just be moved at the real urgency in the world? I mean, God's sovereign. He'll save who he wants to save. Absolutely. That doesn't lessen the fact that this is something to, to, to uh, 
to mourn. This isn't less than the fact to let this light a little bit of a fire underneath us to say there are people that it would have been better for them to live back in Genesis in Sodom and Gomorrah and for the sulfur to fire on, to fall down on their head than to live in the 21st century having rejected the gospel. That should break our hearts. That is a terrible condition that needs to be mourned. My friends, I'll stand by this. People who care nothing about sharing the gospel and sharing about their king are people who do not know how to love. My biggest issue at stake when I choose not to share the gospel with my neighbor, and I'm not talking about going over and you know bombing him with my tracks or hitting him in the head with my Bible. I'm just talking about this, this intentional, planned, trying to reach him, going over, taking brownies to his house, telling him, hey, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm, I'm here, I, I, I want to pray for you. If there's anything I can do, let me know. And that branches off into a conversation about why the Lord let his dad die when he was young. And then opening up into the good news and the hope of the gospel. To go over day after day, checking in on my Roman Catholic neighbor. Hey, you good? Hey, you doing okay? Yeah, interrupt me when you see me on my front porch with my computer. I can always be interrupted by you. I mean, that's what we're called to do, to to be people. Because you know what? Whatever I'm working on on my computer is less urgent than the fact that my neighbor, if he doesn't know Jesus and trust him fully will be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll let that go. But I don't think that God's done in this church making us become more loving, pitying people. We simply get it wrong. Now, we live in a world that is filled with violence and hatred. This has been a terrible week. We uh, Not only do we have COVID and we're trying to get back and and uh, everybody's deflated. I mean, the, if, if anybody came to church today thinking it would be better than what it, what it is kind of now, <laughs> like, like you're, you're in good company, right? Because there's a deflation that happens when we realize, you know what, everything's open, but we still have to social distance. Everything's open, but it's still, there's still some kind of virus out there. Um, a black jogger was shot down this week, and now everybody's arguing again about, about this, this, why didn't anybody make a noise about the white kid, and, you know, and everybody's fighting, and everybody's trying to get into camps of things, right? My friends, we live in a broken world. Can we just, as Christians, mourn the brokenness of the world and stop being terrible doctors? We are terrible doctors. Your president will never fix this world. Your red dead republicanism, your dead blue democraticism, and we do have Democrats in our church, and I thank God for them. And I would tell them the same thing I would tell every Republican. Your party will not fix this country. Your solution to COVID will not help the brokenness of the world. Everyone could buy everything you think, that we, you think they should do. What good does it do them? 
Suppose you just were able to write the script for everyone around the world. This is how you're going to respond for COVID. Great. Everybody gets better. They still don't know Jesus. They're still worse off than Solomon and Gomorrah. We tend to think of ourselves as Americans first, citizens of heaven second, Democrats or Republicans first, and disciples second. And yet, we, as much as we get bogged down into our politics, into our opinions, into our theories, we are being kept back from the real calling. You know what the sad tragedy in all that? I think of the, about the parable of the, the man, the, the men, the servants with the talents, where the master gave five talents to one, two talents to another, and one talent to the other. And, and we know that story. Two out of the three did what they were supposed to do, right? And they get the well done, good and faithful servant, and they invested. We get the one that had the one talent, and he buried it in the ground. And guess what? The whole time he thought he was doing his mission. My greatest fear for the American church is that we have convinced ourselves that we're doing the mission when we're really burying the talent in the ground. Why do we get so sidetracked? Why do we get so bogged down? I stand for life. I stand against abortion, not because republicanism does. I stand for it because my God does. That is a, that is a kingdom policy of my king. I mourned for the black jogger. I'm not a liberal. I don't, I, I don't even know what that means. I mourned because there's a black jogger gunned down in the street. Racism is real. Oppression is real. We live in a world, you just study the 12 minor prophets as we're going to do this summer, and you would be absolutely crazy to think that we live in a tame world. Can we as Christians just for a moment transcend our Americanism, repent of our political idolatry, repent of our fake and false solutions, repent of our addiction to false news and CNN, fake, uh, Fox News and CNN? Can we, just, can we just for a moment be kingdom citizens that, that say, hey, yes, we're temporary Americans, we'll stand with our fellow Americans, we'll vote with our fellow Americans, we'll will help our fellow Americans, but more than that, we as a church are an embassy of a different world. You should see us as aliens. We're the the immigrants that are here to help you. There's no room in the church for those kind of idolatries. Disciples follow Jesus. He's the master of the mission. He's the master of the message. He's the master of the hope. He's the master of everything that we have. He is king. He is hope. He is the one that can save. My friends, do not muddy the gospel with COVID solutions, with politics. Be clear, we are soldiers. That's how Paul calls us in, in 2 Timothy 2 4. We are soldiers not to be entangled in civilian pursuits. To, but we are to please, that's, this is our mission, to aim to please the one who enlisted us. My, uh, my phone does this little screen time tracker, and it says that it was up 25% this week. 
which means that I spent three hours a day on the screen. Three hours a day on the screen. Um, I thought back, I told Rachel, I said, I, I don't know where that, what in the world happened with that? Like, where did that time go? What was I looking at for three hours a day? So I went to the breakdown, and man, I follow, I, like, like two hours were on face, Facebook, one, uh, like another half hour on Instagram, and another hour on my, on my Apple News, trying to figure out all these news headlines. And I'm just like, I know for sure one of those days I skipped out on my deep prayer time that the way I should have. I, I, I know I got sidetracked and bogged down on some of those things. So my friends, just as being a pastor in the midst of a pandemic... It's a pandemic in the sense of everybody's going crazy. Whatever your, whatever your side and belief about this is, these are crazy times. And we have no room to mess up on our mission. More than ever. This is the great sifting of the church. More than ever, we will find out who are called to be true disciples and who follows their Jesus. So, as you go out this week, my prayer is, is that as much time as you give to all these other sidetracks and distractions, that you will give time to be a disciple who follows Jesus. Now, I'm with you in this. Please don't feel like I'm hammering you over the head. I'm, I'm speaking corporately as our church. Our church needs to repent of the things that we get bogged down in. And so I apologize as your pastor for not speaking more clearly I apologize as your pastor for getting bogged down in things I shouldn't get bogged down in. I apologize for getting discouraged and being emotionally fragile every time somebody emails me about music being too loud or carpet not having the right color or whatever else. And I ask you to hold me accountable just as I'll hold you accountable. We follow Jesus. We wear sandals and we go out into the desert And we bear the heat and the persecution and the crosses, waiting the day for the resurrection and waiting for the day when there will be no more America, no more Trump, no more Biden, no more red, no more blue, but only Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you know my prayer this week has been a deep groaning for my own heart to be compelled to mission, Father, to not drift, Father, in the mission, to not be like the servant that buried the talent and thought that I was doing what I was supposed to. Lord, help me repent to be more mindful of the people who are facing an eternity that's worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. Help me to be a person who is moved by pity and love and compassion like my Savior. Lord, let me mourn and speak out about the depravity when a black jogger is killed. Let me be able to mourn when a white pastor commits suicide. Let me be able to to weep, Lord, when babies die and when politicians take advantage of innocent young women. But Lord, let me weep and mourn even more when I spend three hours a day on social media and news and forget 
that all of those things will fade. But my neighbor has an eternal soul that must be prepared to meet you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.